You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Well, a very good morning to you, um, Turners Hill Free Church. Um, great big greetings from Elim Church. Elim Family Church, South Water. Even I couldn't get it right. Um, just to let you know who I am, a little bit of my background, so you can kind of um, get where I'm coming from. So um, I served as a chaplain in immigration, essentially prison work up at Gatwick Airport, where we did have three centres, and I worked with Nick for a number of years um, for my sins. And I was in that ministry for about 10 years, um, and then just over four years ago, um, my wife and I planted a church in the village of Southwater. Um, so we've been there just over four years now and really been enjoying it. So very much um, we've come from a very village mentality. So it's lovely to be in another village church. See how you guys do it in sunny Turners Hill. So, um, you know, one of the great sort of temptations, I put it as a temptation that that, that's probably an unfair word. But when you come to visit a church, you think, what can I share? And what's going to make me popular and, and going to be liked by people that I've never met before? Um, so I've not gone down that road, you'd be pleased to know. I've gone down the, what, what do I think God has laid on my heart to share with you? So if you have a Bible, great to see people going for a Bible that's Lovely. You know, in our church, everyone just grabs a phone or an iPad or something, and I'm there thinking, wow, I feel really archaic with a, a paper version. If you'd like to turn to the book of Acts, we're going to be in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, and what I'd like to do um, is take you on a bit of a journey this morning. If you're awake, you can just shake your hand at me just so I can see you. And, you know, what I encourage our guys to do, hope you don't mind, is, um, you know, that the, the minister or the, the preacher has spent all week planning, thinking, studying and praying for what they do on a Sunday morning. And uh, maybe you've just come in kind of cold and thinking, I wonder what God's going to do. So what I encourage our guys to do is, if you're able, sit with 100% energy. <laughs> Like, you are ready, like, that your face is, like, totally engaged with what I'm saying. And it kind of helps you think, oh, this kind of involves me as well, doesn't it? And um, I've found, um, if you want to learn, it is really important how you kind of posture yourself, because it, it gets you in a position ready, doesn't it? Yes, Dave, I agree with that, thank you. Just checking someone's awake. Okay, so what I'm going to do is take a bit of a history lesson. Um, if you've been a Christian or you've been going to church for decades, some of this will resonate with you. If you have come to faith more recently, you'll have no idea what I'm talking about. But um, I was in church from zero, as it were, and so a lot of this I remember or was trained as I um, studied church history. So if I could take you back around 100 years, which probably uh, is not in the memory of most people in this room, um, we uh, 1918, we've just finished the First World War which relatively soon after was followed by the Second World War. Those two world wars really affected Western Europe in terms of church. A large amount of the generation, a large percent of the generation left the church altogether because they could not get their head around how could a loving God allow so much suffering? And that is, you know, we're running an Alpha course at the moment, and the 
first question people have, the, the question they are, would ask God if there was a God, they would say, why did you allow so much suffering? And by and large, the church didn't have a lot of answers. Didn't know how to answer that very well. Um, so we saw the decline of the church or the influence of the church and a lot of people leaving the church. And so with that, there is this pattern where when you have God, you have goodness. And then the next generation that get rid of God, you have goodness still for a generation. But then when you don't have God, it doesn't last very long and you end up not having goodness either. And so the church rightly saw this problem and thought we need to turn the tide. We need to stem the flow of, of sin and deprivation in this country. And if we could fast forward to the 1970s. Um, for those of you in church in the 1970s, um, you'll know that the big thing was renewal. It was the Holy Spirit believing again in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the charismatic movement, um, which spawned a huge amount of churches. And it believed that if we could, if we could just have the prophetic word, if we could just see healings in the church, then the whole nation would, would get on board with this and we would uh, turn the tide of this nation. In the 1980s, that gave way to something called restoration theology or restoration churches. That was the belief we needed to get away from the the old um, uh, traditional churches and we start new churches that were different, that were ready for Jesus to come back. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, a very famous uh, Welsh preacher, he said um, that he told the Church of England, he said, all of you who are charismatics, leave the Church of England, we're going to start new churches. Then if we fast forwarded to the 1990s, the next R, as it were, was revival. Um, all the ch- A lot of churches were saying, what we need is to turn the nation back was revival. So you always go to every meeting, it was revival. And there was the Pensacola revival, Toronto revival. I used to go to a church that had the National Revival Center outside of it, all saying, this is what the nation needs to turn the hearts of people back to God. And almost every, almost every sermon in the churches that I attended were revival, revival, revival. And then as we head into the 2000s, I would argue the big thing we saw was it was like a pseudo-reformation. Another R, reformation. It was to say we need to get rid of even our understanding of church. We need to get rid of all of that and we need to like rethink what we're doing. And it was how do we get authentic? How do we get raw? How do we dispose of what is hindering the church? My best man at my wedding, he was a pastor's son. He no longer goes to church and he said, I love Jesus. But the church is all wrong, and I don't believe that we should be part of any institution. Which kind of leaves you isolated, you end up doing nothing. And then into the 2010s, as it were, I think the big thing has been reunification. Um, The last year I was at Spring Harvest, and the big anthem there was, We Are One. It was trying to say all the churches gathered together were one and they sent around this sort of uh, large um, banner, I suppose, going all the churches to write how we are one in Christ we are one. The Anglican church and the Methodist church, as we're speaking, are talking about uniting. And it's as if to say, if I went around this room, I'm sure most of you have probably been to another church and you didn't mind that Turner's Hill was a free church. If we went back in time, you would have only gone to a Baptist church if you were in a Baptist family, Anglican church if you are in an Anglican family. But now there's kind of, everyone's not that bothered about the denomination. So there's been a reunification. All of these have been with the mindset of how do we turn 
the nation back to Christ. We don't like the fact that we have lost so much ground. How do we get back to where we were? And the church tends to be very nostalgic. Even uh, planting a church is only four years old. People hearken back. They want the hymns they grew up with where they maybe experienced the, the, the greatest sort of experience of their Christian life. They want to see the teachings that they used to have when they were a child because they want, they think that's what will turn people back to Christ. And it leaves people like myself and Jeff and other pastors saying, how should the church prepare its people for the future? Because where is it going? And I have been believing for some time that the church is heading towards suffering. And by and large, churches need to prepare for where we're heading next. And I think the weight of evidence, and I think the spirit is saying that we need to prepare for suffering looking ahead. Are you all still with me? Three of you are wonderful. Okay. Um, So church history is also very potted. When we think of the Reformation in the 16th century with Martin Luther, and we think of the Church of England arising out of that, it's interesting how much of that is good and bad mixed together. The reason we have a Church of England is essentially the root was sexual promiscuity. The reason I believe we will see the disestablishment of the Church of England will again be sexual promiscuity in gay marriage. People get very passionate about the fact that Charles, he wants to change the title from defender of the faith to defender of faith. But people don't realise where that term has come from. It came from the Catholic Pope to English kings who were Catholic to say, defend the faith against Protestantism. It's a very potted history, isn't it? Every year at Christmas, we we try to convince people that the version of Christmas we're experiencing has virtually nothing to do with the Bible. The nativity story is so unlike the story in the Bible. How ironic history really is. And it leaves us thinking, where will the 21st century take the church? When we look back to the last hundred years, we can see how it's decimated the church, at least in Western Europe. And I think things will spiritually get more difficult for churches and for Christians. I think by and large, churches will get smaller, but purer in their form. Um, I joined Facebook. I'm a, I'm a bit of a, a technophobe with a lot of these things. And I joined it only a few years ago. And I came off it actually fairly recently, by and large, because I was so shocked by what the average person thought. You only need to check out a public post where everyone's commenting on it, whatever it is. And it is, it is shocking what the average person thinks, what language they're prepared to use, how critical they are of everyone and everything. And even Christians in our, my own church were one of the reasons I came off it because I couldn't believe the language, the topics that the average Christian thinks. You know, when I went, think about when I was a young child in church and I think what was the um, normal things spoken off from the front that even I am very reticent to preach on. We don't talk about it anymore because we realize we're offending people and we're worried about what people think and we're very slow to talk about sexual promiscuity and affairs outside of marriage and what people look at on the internet, what language they use, how much they love alcohol, which are all symptoms of a very low spiritual appetite. 
Um, I don't know what problems you'd have in Turners Hill Free Church. Uh, Jeff hasn't told me. Um, but in Southwater, when we have a prayer meeting, it's like the lowest attended event that we could possibly run. It wasn't that way when I was a kid. The whole church came out. We had two services on the Sunday, and they were packed every service. But spiritual appetite is low. They say that only a third of believers read their Bible every day, which I think is probably actually too high a statistic. And it leaves us thinking, what about the next generation? I have three kids at home, and I think, where does it leave them? I think where it is going to leave them is a whole generation back and out from church. It's going to mean our own children saying, well, you know, we see this decline. We see where it's going. And I think the next generation will give up on it altogether. They say, why bother with church? And I don't tell you this as an old man. I tell you this as a relatively young man. That the church is on its knees, but it doesn't realize it. And this all brings me on to today's message. What I think is interesting for us in the church in the West is what we experience in this country, what we experience in seeing the decline is actually abnormal compared with the rest of the world. For 1600 years, the church has an incredible prominence in society. It is enabled to shape laws and shape culture and shape people's thinking, shape traditions. And that is all ebbing away and we don't like it. We want to be at the center stage having influence. But they say, statistically, around 250,000 people every year are martyred for being Christians. In places like Indonesia, southern Sudan, Saudi Arabia, people are martyred for their faith, and that is normal. But most of the world, to be a Christian, you will suffer for being a Christian. And I think it's slowly coming here. Um, if you were a Christian in the 90s, you may remember the big campaign of Keep Sunday Special. How many of you remember that? Raise your hand. Keep Sunday Special. It was about 1994, and the church was praying, and our church was having updates in Parliament where things were going. And it was a fight to say, there was a unity of churches saying, we do not want trading on Sundays. And we lost that battle, but it was right that we fought it. But it kind of shows how society regards what the church says. How many of you remember Jim, Jesus in me? You'd need a good memory to remember that. That was the belief that 250,000 people were going to fill 10 stadiums, West Ham stadiums, to be converted to Christ. How many of you remember in the 80s, the March for Jesus? Yeah. And we can see all of these um, schemes to, as it were, say, we need Jesus back at the centre. We're in the book of Acts, and you see, we've been going through the book of Acts in our church in Southwater. And what's fascinating, I think if we'd gone through this 20 years ago in church, people would have been saying, I'm so pleased it's not like that in, in this country. And now people are reading this with a different lens to say, maybe this is where we're heading. You know, we have experienced in the last 15 years in this country, the first Christians to be put in prison for preaching the gospel on the streets. Isn't that unbelievable? Christians have been put in prison for disturbing the public, um, the public peace and for preaching offensive messages to various sexual groups in prison. Um, in Acts chapter 7, we'll read that, I'll read that to us. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. 
It may seem a bit of a random place that I'm starting. It's because this is where I'd apportioned it in when we went through this with our church. But this really kind of gets to the nuts and bolts of what I want to look at this morning. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. It says, this is Stephen talking to the religious leaders. He says, you stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen knows how to make friends, doesn't he? Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. Two more verses. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. What an uplifting passage to be reading on a Sunday morning in March. Um, what I generally do um, in Southwater, and I'm sure Jeff does similar here, is we look at that passage and we work out how does that apply to us as a church? How does that apply to my work tomorrow in Sunday morning, uh, on Monday morning? So Stephen, he tells the people that are listening, mostly religious leaders, and he says, you are a stiff-necked, uncircumcised people. And that means, stiff-necked means they are not willing to change their mindset. Uncircumcised in, um, means that circumcision was a sign of something else. Hopefully that they'd be set apart in their hearts. And he said, although you are essentially circumcised on the outward or physically, you are not circumcised where it really matters, where it matters to God. And so that this crowd, they are furious at him declaring. And what Stephen does, and and it's really ingenious that I think um, churches really latched onto this idea that everything in the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus. Almost every character in the Old Testament, you could say, this is a shadow of something better to come. Everyone from Moses, from Joseph, from King David, Solomon, all the prophets, you could say, they're all pointing ahead. The law is pointing ahead. The creation, you look at it and, you, and we see the fall, we think, wow, this is wrong. Death. I mean, we talked about a death of someone this morning, didn't we? We feel that something within us is like, this is wrong. This should not be happening. And it's all pointing to Jesus. And he uses to say, 
Historically, he said to these people, you always resist the prophets. And I think that'd be the same of today's church. We always resist this prophetic message of God saying, change your mind, change your ways. And people resist it, saying, no, this can't be of God. This doesn't add up with what I've experienced. He uses logic to say history is repeating itself. Watch out. And um, what we looked at in previous weeks in the church is to say how much um, people are motivated by envy. And these guys, they're envious of the apostles being able to do signs and wonders. They're envious of the way that they preach with such authority. They were envious of Jesus, that he was able to do all these wonderful things, attract large crowds. And they look at Stephen and they're just envious. How can this guy be saying these things against us? Don't, doesn't he know who we are? And what is beautiful about this passage is Stephen, the, the Bible tells us he is so consumed with the Holy Spirit. You know, in one sense, imagine you know you were going to die for being a Christian. It would fill us with dread. We would rather not know what was coming. But in this moment where he's about to be killed, he is so consumed. His, his whole being is caught up with who Jesus is. And it's as if that overrides everything else. I don't know how many of you have experienced being in love. If you're married, you should be shaking your head right now. Yes, I've experienced. Where everything is is coloured and um, and is changed by that experience of being in love. And here is a follower of Jesus so consumed with the vision of Jesus, saying, I can see Jesus. And he doesn't really care that he's being stoned because it overrides it. It is a bigger vision who Jesus is than even being killed for his faith. And the parallel, and it's, it would have been so obvious to the, to the early readers, the early listeners, here is Stephen, and he's like, um, Lord, forgive them for what they're going to do and receive my spirit, which is an absolute parallel to Jesus on the cross, who says the same thing, don't hold this in against them, and I give my spirit unto you. And what this whole set of events triggers is the reason you are in a church in 2018. If we went back to Acts chapter 1, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, preach the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But guess what? The church hadn't gone any further than Jerusalem. Hadn't gone out. It was loving the experience so much. It was just, it was just in awe of the apostles' teaching. They were having signs and wonders. People were gathering together and the numbers were going dramatically upwards and thousands of people coming to Christ. And it took what looked like the enemy scheme to extinguish the church, to get rid of it through persecution. God used that situation to grow his church. And I think there's something profound in that for us as a church, isn't it? That what looks like the enemy gaining ground, having his way, doing what he wants. You think about how in the 1960s abortion came legal. Divorce was easier. Where did that lead to? Um, a number of years ago, um, Nick and I were, or I was in a, sem- a seminar with a, um, a gay couple telling people what language to be using in the centers, how we should be talking to transgenders. And I remember just had a, a quick chat with um, the lady, one of the lady presenters. And I said, where do you think it's going to go next? 
And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you've got the, the law to be married, but, but where does it go next? She said, well, she said I don't understand. She said, are you happy with, with all of the laws in this country for gay people? And she said, yeah, I'm really happy. I said, but, but where does it go next? She said, what do you mean? She said, well, what about uh, marrying your animal? Type of thing I would say, admittedly, because uh, as Nick would call me socially retarded. Um, she said, that's disgusting. And I said, you won't be able to say that in a few years' time. She said, and I could think of plenty of other examples, marrying your sister, marrying your brother. What about children? On all of these things that used to be we won't talk about, that suddenly are being spoken about. And we are seeing this progression of where are the, where is the lines? No one knows. What are the rules? No one knows anymore. Because there is no authority for where people will all agree and say, this is our standing point. So this church are persecuted and they scatter because they are afraid. They flee. They go different places where hopefully they won't be persecuted. And what happens is people start preaching the gospel where they go. It's such an exciting time because it looks fearful and it looks like, but what's going to happen next? What about my life? And, and actually God has his way because the gospel is going out like he commanded them to do and they are preaching as they go. And Saul is there. And we know about Saul, don't we? He's this guy who hates Christians. And yet, very soon after this event, he meets Jesus himself. Which is like, in one sense, the biggest kick in the teeth. You're thinking you're doing God's work. And he meets you. And in a moment, you realize, I've got it all wrong. And he becomes this greatest ambassador for Jesus. Wouldn't it be lovely for us to see our colleagues at work our next-door neighbours meets the risen Jesus. What would that look like if people in your street came to Christ? Because the church, when it's persecuted and it's suffering, becomes its most powerful. And a large part of us, and I'm sure I feel just like you about this, my flesh is saying, I do not want Pain and suffering for the church. I mean, who wants that? Suffering is not a message my flesh enjoys hearing. But something in my spirit says, yes, that this is good for the church. This is normal for the church. That suddenly, a lot of scripture makes a lot of sense. You know, I remember having a debate with someone about the, the book of Revelation, which is like one of probably the most difficult book to understand what earth is going on. And often it's debated in academic circles with a load of other people who are in the same situation as you. What is interesting, in places where they are persecuted, they read that book very differently. And what they read it as is it's a manual for martyrs. They read it as a church, all the churches suffering. They read it as what is the overarching message for the church is that Jesus wins. And let me finish with this. So um, Saul, who becomes Paul, ends up writing a large section of the New Testament. And in the book of First Corinthians, right at the end, he uses two words and he combines them. And it becomes like a one word, as it were, prayer for the early church. And the word is Maranatha. And it's a beautiful word that I'd like you to at least memorize one word. If you can't remember anything else, remember that word Maranatha and what it means. It simply means, Lord, 
come. The reason it's such a profound word is because, you know, I listen to a lot of people praying in church, and one of the prayers that you virtually never hear is, Lord, come. But what you do find when you go to a a place where people are persecuted for the faith, you realize people change their prayer. The prayers of those in Acts, the, the apostles, change their prayers. They change their focus. And suddenly, prayers change to, Lord, come. It's interesting when we read uh, the Lord's Prayer or, the, or the, the Disciples' Prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Now, often when you hear it preached, or in, if you look in um, your commentary of it, it will say something like, um, it could mean several things, of course, but often people think of it as, may your kingdom come today in my life, which is an absolutely um, fair understanding but i think the kind of the overarching thing that i think jesus is helping us to understand is things are not going to be right until i come back thy kingdom come they will be done on earth as it is in heaven i think is ultimately pointing jesus coming back and making things right And it's a prayer, I think, every Christian, think about how difficult your life is right now. If your life is easy and comfortable and just how you like it, it will not be a prayer on your lips very easily. If your life is difficult, you are grieving, you're going through bereavement, maybe you're going through persecution yourself, your prayer will change the Lord Jesus come. It will be something within you welling up to say, actually, I'm refocused on this. Right at the end of the Bible, the second to last verse of your Bible is John saying, even so, Lord Jesus, come. I'm just going to end with this. Maybe we could pray. Lord, we know that you delay your coming because you love people and you want people to repent. And we think you're slow in coming back. But it simply reveals how patient you are. And I'm praying for this lovely church in Turner's Hill. And I pray what they would understand on this is, what does this require of us? If the church is heading towards a difficult time, what does that mean today? How can we prepare for it? I pray for parents hearing this, thinking of their own children like I would be. And I pray that they would see a robust faith. The children would grow up seeing how much their parents prioritize Jesus over their jobs, over money. That they are shown how to read a Bible and how to pray together. That they would grow up strong in the faith, that we're able to pass down a faith to our children that is able to weather the difficulties that are coming. I pray for those struggling this morning as as we live in such confusing times that there is so much disunity in the church. It tries to be united, but we look at it and say, but there are so many different viewpoints. May we realize that there is only one thing that is certain, and that's Jesus, because he is the same yesterday and today and forever, that he never changes. And he is the rock on which the rest of the church will be built. He is the cornerstone. May we realize that we don't attain heaven by good works we don't reach it by striving we get it by receiving and following you what do you require of us you require us to simply trust you 
And while that doesn't mean we get to see how the next decades pan out, it means that today we trust you. May our prayers, may our prayers regularly include that word, Maranatha, Lord, come. May when we see what is happening around us, may we not despair and feel discouraged, but we'll be encouraged to say, this isn't the end of the story. This isn't simply where the road is leading. Actually, one day Jesus is going to come back and make this right again. May it put in us an urgency. Then why am I here on this planet for? With the urgency of reaching my neighbors, reaching those around us that don't yet know you. May there be something within us to say, may I be useful to my maker. May I live my life differently to those around me. May I have a love for them that says, let me help point you to the rescuer. Lord, it will mean so much spiritually for our country when it leaves God and it leaves goodness behind. And we are praying that you continue to purify your church, that we would be useful to you. In Jesus' precious name, we agreed and said, Amen. Amen. Amen.